Hello and welcome to the 26th Unorthodoxy podcast. Um, I know I haven't posted anything very new in a while, uh, and this is mostly owed to the fact that the end of this year, the, just the rush um, to, to finish this year well, has turned out to be completely mad. So in lieu of brand new material, I thought to share something old. Uh, this is a talk that I gave back in 2012 on the topic of originality. Uh, so it's kind of weird, I guess, that I'm posting something on originality that is not new. But anyway, um, I also want to announce that I have, at long last, and somewhat reluctantly, set up a Patreon page for this podcast. Um, although my aim in starting this podcast has never been to make money from it, and that will remain my aim, I also figured that maybe losing money is not ne necessarily the wisest move. So if you do want to help, even with a very small donation, that'll be really great, and of course also very deeply appreciated. If you don't uh, feel that you want to help, that's okay too. Uh, you can still listen in for free. So thanks for listening in, and now here is my talk on the topic, Is Originality Dead? I want to put your minds at rest uh, with the question, Is Originality Dead? Which is great. Uh, yes, it's dead. Sorry, uh, that's it. That's my talk. Good. Okay. Any questions? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, well, basically, one of the things that you notice if you look out at the kind of postmodern landscape, if that's what you want to call it, is that you get tons of remixes. A remix is a song that's been rehashed into something else. Remix. Sequel, I, on the remakes issue, it's really interesting. If you look at the the frequency or the the rate of remakes being remade, it's getting smaller. So, for example, you had Spider-Man movies coming out. Okay, there's Spider-Man TV series around the 60s. Then a movie coming around 2001, and then a remake 10 years later. There was also a movie called Death at a Funeral, made in 2007. They made a remake in 2010. So it's getting a little ridiculous. Uh, sequels. We have had somewhere in the region of 21 James Bond movies. Yeah. Translations, retranslations, appropriations, even philosophy. There's this uh, well-known saying in philosophy that all philosophy is really a footnote to Plato. Uh, even even someone like Cicero in Plato's, or like a little while after Plato, said Plato is the greatest philosopher, and that has stuck. So, uh, pastiches, parodies, plagiarism. If you want to find out more about this particular sort of array of words, go and check out everything is a, rem a remix.info. It's a really interesting site, so I'm not going to go through all the detail that is covered there. This is not a particularly new problem, and I, I want to use one example just from over a century ago. Helen Keller, when she was about 12, I hope you can hear me over the coffee machines. Are you doing okay? Um, actually, am I doing okay? I think that's good. Uh, um, Helen Keller was accused of, as a 12-year-old girl, she had, now obviously, a huge learning process because she was both deaf and blind. And yet, some, somewhere along the line, she managed to write a book called The Frost King, a story called The Frost King. Someone named Margaret Canby was very upset because she said, that is a lot like my book, Frost Fairies. 
because it has the word frost in it. It was much, it was actually very, very close. About a decade after this event, Mark Twain wrote to Helen Keller. Mark Twain was a very good friend of Helen Keller's. And this is what he said. Oh dear me, how unspeakably funny and owlishly idiotic and grotesque was that plagiarism farce. As if there was much of anything in human utterance, oral or written, except plagiarism. The kernel, the soul, let us go further and say the substance, the bulk, the actual and valuable material of all human utterances is plagiarism. For substantially all ideas are second-hand. I should know because I got this from Mark Twain. (laughs) Consciously and unconsciously drawn from a million outside sources and daily used by the garnerer with the pride and satisfaction born of the superstition that he originated them. Whereas there is not a rag of originality about them anywhere except the little discoloration they get from his mental and moral caliber and his temperament and which is revealed in characteristics of phrasing. When a great orator makes a great speech, you are listening to ten centuries and ten thousand men. I love that line. It's just so beautiful. But we call it his speech, and really some exceedingly small portion of it is his, but not enough to signify. It is merely a waterloo. It is Wellington's battle in some degree, and we call it his, but there are others that contribute it, obviously. (laughs) It takes a thousand men to invent a telegraph or a steam engine or a phonograph or a telephone or any other important thing. And the last man gets the credit and we forget the others. He added his little might. That is all he did. These object lessons should teach us that 99 parts of all things that proceed from the intellect are plagiarisms. Pure and simple. And the lesson ought to make us modest. No, he said, yeah, it's probably plagiarism, but what's the big deal? Everything's plagiarism. Everything's plagiarized. By the way, this is from a... I'm I'm giving some credit to some of my sources. That's a way that you avoid being accused of plagiarism. Uh, This is from a a website called Letters of Note, which is really worthwhile going to see because uh, there's lots of letters collected throughout history. So you have letters written by Walt Disney to to women about why they shouldn't work at his animation studio. Fascinating. Historically hysterical. Anyway. So, uh, he made it up. So, yes, original... Actually, I'll I'll get to that. Originality is dead. So, just to summarize, Mark Twain, the the bulk of all human utterances is plagiarism. Wilson Misner would know this because he said, to steal ideas from one person is plagiarism, to steal ideas from many is research. (laughs) And of course, he would know this because he plagiarized this idea from John Milton, who said, copy from one, it's plagiarism, copy from two, it's research. Paraphrase, and you can make it your own. So this is a a lesson in how to plagiarize. Uh, It's not really what I was aiming for, but anyway. (laughs) Oscar Wilde, who I, I think most would regard as a wildly original right I'm sorry that actually wasn't on purpose uh, he, he said he was asked do you plagiarize and of course he said of course I plagiarize it is the privilege of the appreciative man um, uh, if you, you find out that Steve Jobs ma- many of his ideas for, for Apple computers were plagiarized which is just a fascinating thing. So he, he copied, and he, he openly said, we've 
taken the best from IBM and various other computer companies. We've made our own. It's better than theirs because we basically copied the best and not the worst. And then he instigates suing other companies for copying his... What? Anyway, let's just be... And I think Mark Twain's suggestion, let's just be a little humble about this, is a really good suggestion. Uh, so this is really not a new issue. The story of Noah and the flood, which we are all very familiar with. I'm, I just want to preface this by saying dating historical texts is not an easy process and there are some confusions that can arise. But scholars, uh, at least in you know, kind of broadly speaking, are convinced that this is not an original story. It comes from an, the Epic of Gilgamesh, a story about some guy named Utnapishtim, which you can all say after me. Uh, um, and that was sort of more or less 400 years before that. They're not exactly sure, but that story is also plagiarized. It comes from the story of Atrahasis and the flood from the Atrahasis epic, 18th century BC. That story is also plagiarized. You can th I'm just trying to ch chain of connection just to show you. That comes from the Zia Sudra story of the flood, which is from Eridu Genesis, the third millennium BC. And then you discover that there are over 500 flood legends worldwide, which says that the legends themselves must be, and most people agree, rooted in some kind of actual event. So even the stories didn't originate in themselves, they originated from some kind of actual event. And then more recently, we've got Evan Almighty, which I think does a great job of, uh, of just unpacking the absurdity of that, that whole, the comedy of, of the story of Noah, which is fantastic. Okay, I'll get back to this later. The Bible is not particularly against this idea that there are copies. If you were to ask Solomon or some guy pretending to be Solomon, what do you think about this? He would have said, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. What has been will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. So, uh, is there such a thing of which it can be said, see, this is new, it has already been in the ages before us. Which is the biblical equivalent of meh, or whatever. Uh, it is an existential kind of experience that, that I think this guy is having. So it's maybe dangerous to take it as absolutely literally true, but I think it's, it's an interesting idea. So, to understand why originality is dead in the sense that I've mentioned here, it's helpful to make a distinction. Creation out of nothing, ex nihilo, or creation ex aliquid. <laughs> Which is created, that's something, by the way. I thought I'd just throw in a little Latin. The Greek is coming. Uh, so, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Seriously. Uh, so, we do not, like, unlike God, we create out of stuff. We are material beings in a material world, and some of you are material girls, apparently, according to Madonna. And so there is this sense in which we, we have to draw our inspiration from things outside of us. That's just the thing. So... Everything becomes an echo, but that echo happens, I would say, within the divine drama, within the drama of God. So there is a sense in which He is originating all things perfectly out of nothing, which raises all sorts of confusing questions about the nature of mystery, which of course is fairly mysterious. 
But I would say, and this is where I basically throw everything I've said before out, uh, it is only arrogance that would say that originality is really dead. The elements of creation may be the same, but the variations are really endless. Of course, to help me show this, is uh, I've got Rory's Story Cubes. Who of you know of these, by the way? Fascinating. A few of you. Okay. It's a little box of these little dice. Okay. There, uh, I'll read what it says on the back of the packaging. There are nine cubes, 54 images, and they've kind of calculated more. It's over 10 million combinations of these images. So I've got a little image of a sheep or a lock or a fire or a, an L on a sign. And you can you basically start, once upon a time, there was a little sheep named Osvaldo. <laughs> and he was obsessed with teepees. Which is that. Uh, and one day his teepee fell down. I don't know. You can carry on. But, but what's brilliant about this is it reveals that the elements of the, the story may be the same, but the story can also change radically. Okay, so that's, that, that idea makes sense. Another example is Rachmaninoff. Okay, it's the first time I'm using classical music as an illustration, but I think it's helpful. Okay, so Rachmaninoff took a theme which was written by Paganini. Paganini was a violinist who, who reminded people of the devil. Don't know why. No one had seen that. Anyway, but because when he played, he played with such ferocity that his violin caught fire. That's not true. But it could have been. Uh, anyway, so Rachmaninoff took Paganini's theme, and this is, this is the theme that, that... Oh, volume? This, it sounds like this. Some of you have heard this, I'm sure. It's fairly well known. Rachmaninoff turned it into, this is variation number 18, because in musical history there is this idea you can have a theme and variations. Very simple, and that's exactly what I'm trying to point out here. This is his, the kind of slow, slow version. It's very soft, sorry, it'll build up as well. We'll build up, you'll hear it at the back. I'm sorry, <laughs> it's very soft. Okay, this is my, I doodled this on an iPad, so it's kind of untidy, but 
for those of you who don't know music, it's okay. Basically, the basic idea, the little dots that go up, that's higher in frequency. Ones that are lower, lower in frequency. Anyway, so that little, little bit, these five notes here, he just flipped them. That's all he did. Turned them upside down and then put it into a major key. Totally, completely, utterly different. Uh, just trust me on this one. Uh, <laughs> uh, totally different musical experience using exactly the same elements. So, this idea that originality is dead in the absolute sense doesn't really work. The way that I, I think that because of this, we need to maybe rethink our understanding of the nature of originality in terms of time. I know that sounds like a bit of an odd move, but I'm not interested in normal. So, uh, although I do draw a comic called Finding Normal. Anyway, maybe we need to redefine originality. It's helpful to understand that we in the West have basically one concept of time. Time is chronos. It is chronology. This, this is, uh, means that time is linear, it moves, so history becomes one damn thing after another, as you've heard. It is dialectical, so in the Hegelian sense of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, that synthesis becomes another thesis, that becomes a opposed new antithesis, another synthesis, it keeps on going until we arrive at eschatology, which is another thing that is dominant in, in Western, the Western view of time, which is that at some point it's going to end. We know this because we have all seen Roland Emmerich films, uh, Day After Tomorrow, 2012, <laughs> Independence Day, just lots of disaster, but I love disaster movies, oh, so just apparently the world's going to end at the end of the year. What do you think? The Mayans were smoking pot. Anyway. Um, this, this understanding of time is uh, it's even prevalent in philosophy. You get uh, people like uh, Zizek has written a book called Living in the End Times, which is based on another philosopher, uh, philosopher's idea. His name is Francis Fukuyama, which is not to be mispronounced. Anyway, time should time in this Western <laughs> time in the Western sense is constructed. It is. It is By that I mean quite literally we have watches and clocks and we construct a sense of time and by this we measure how people are late or early. So this is the Western notion of time. In the Bible, they have a totally different understand understanding of time. Which is not the Buddhist sort of circular time, but it is something called chirology or kairos time. This is, I think, a much better way of looking at time. It, it is complex. It allows for paradoxes. In other words, lots of things happening in sort of synchronicity, things happening in, at the same time. Or um, It's apocalyptic. And by that I mean apocalypse in, in Greek it just comes from the word that, that means unconcealing. Interestingly, it's very, very closely related to the, the word for truth in Greek, which is aletheia. When Jesus talks about him being the truth, he is the aletheia, the unconcealing. It's beautiful. We kind of lose that in the, in the and I know I'm dissing Latin, but we lose that in the Latin veritas, which is just this kind of very specific kind of truth. So kairos time is true time. It's the, the time that actually is. It's timely. It's a context for chronos. This is a, another way of 
defining Kairos time. It is the opportune time, the timely or crucial time, the perfect time, the supreme moment, and it implies divine appointment, some kind of just things happening in the right place. And I, I, of course I have to compare divine appointment to the punchline of a joke. <laughs> they are very similar. Um, the punchline of a joke requires that you actually, that everything happens at the right moment. If you deliver the punchline badly or at the wrong time, you miss it. The, the joke is, and then you have someone trying to explain the joke, and that's a way to kill the joke. <laughs> it's true. So that's what Kairos is. Makes sense. Okay. Coupled with these concepts of time, there is also a specific concept of newness. The Western concept of newness is what, what you can call neos newness. Neos is the one word in Greek for, for newness. It, it implies a movement away from the old. It's a departure. It's away from this. It, it kind of evokes the Western uh, obsession with progress, which we're all fairly familiar with. Uh, we, as I've mentioned before, we live in a culture of planned obsolescence. You're, you have to get a new cell phone, not because your old one is not good enough, but because the shop tells you to. Because Nokia keeps on wanting to produce a new cell phone or Apple or whoever. It's just this obsession with progress that comes from this concept of newness. It is also kind of problematic because, of course, a rejection of the old is always somehow reliant on the old. We all know that. So wh whatever you're trying to reject, you actually are enslaved to. Which gives you interesting insights into what Jesus said when he, he was talking about turning the other cheek, the, the kind of non-violent approach to, to life in general. The Greek um, in the New Testament uses a different word for newness, which is much closely closer coupled with chirology, which is... Newness that is a movement into the future and into the past at exactly the same time. Yes, that's what I, I just said actually makes sense. I trust this, I'm not sure. Anyway, it, it's a movement towards the ancient. It, it implies renewedness or regeneration. There, there's a sense of it being with. Like Kairos time is complex. It's it relies on synchronicities, this does the same. It says that, that at some point you're working with all sorts of other things to create something that is new and old at the same time. So in Kairos time, age, wisdom and experience are very, very precious. Um, in, in the West, because we have a Neos concept of time, there is a sense of at, at a certain age, we ship our old people off to old persons, people's homes and we leave them there because age is not vital. A chirological view of, of time, which I think is actually closer to the African view of time, values age, wisdom, experience. You'll notice that the, the Bible, I mean in Jeremiah there's something about, look, seek the old paths, the ancient paths, that's where the good way lies. Okay, so it totally subverts the Western concept of newness. And we get this sense in like one passage in 1 John 2 verse 7. He says, uh, 
Beloved, I'm writing no new commandment. It's not new, but it's an old commandment that you had from the beginning. At the same time, it is new. It's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. So there's a paradox here. It's something that is very new because it is very old. And I will explain how this works. No, I will try and explain how this works in a bit. Okay, so kainos newness allows for a paradox, something that can be new and old at precisely the same perfect, opportune, chirological time. You didn't expect to learn this much Greek, I'm very sorry. Uh, but, which brings me, of course, to Spider-Man. Spider-Man in the 1960s uh, w was created when Peter Parker... Okay, I'm in the story, not in the reality. Let's, like, separate them. Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider. Why? Because at that time, that was a major concern. Culturally, it was a, a major... Yeah, it was a major problem. The 2001 version of Spider-Man had him bitten by a genetically mutated spider. Now comic fans when they get when they see a change like this they freak out Any, no seriously this is like what are you doing you're violating the, the original intention of the author but of course if anyone who's into comics will know that this is not unusual as Tom Jones would say it's um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what on earth I woke up with, but anyway, this coffee's really doing. Yeah. Okay, they actually because this happens in in the comics world so often, they actually now have a name for it. They call this a retcon, which is a which is short for a retroactive continuity. I don't know why it's not retroactive discontinuity, but anyway. It's, it's, you launch back into the original story and you change a detail to make it more timely. Why? Because these days, radioactivity is not such a big issue. Because we, we don't live in a sort of post-war like thre threat of, of weapons of mass destruction culture at all. Oh, wait. Anyway, um, so we, we live in an age where the debate is primarily one about ge genetic manipulation. The, the, it's again a, some, some kind of scientific meta-narrative. Anyway, but what this does, this little retcon does, is it tries to make the story relevant to now. It tries to reimagine something very old in a way that it fits in the present. Which brings me back to Noah. What happens if you are a Jewish storyteller and you're confronted with the dominant story of the time, which is what the flood legends um, were, they were that was the dominant story. And if you're confronted with that as a Jewish writer, and then you you have received a new epiphany, a timely, perfect, apocalyptic epiphany of what reality really is, what are you going to do? And the answer is, you rewrite the story. Obviously, now I'm not. Obviously, I'm not going to go into too much detail about the specifics. But when you when you read the story of Noah against all of the older versions of the story, you realize just how similar. So, so the the way of saying that this is oh, it's just coincidence. It, it doesn't really work. At least not for me. You're welcome to to find other reasons. But anyway, 
you find, for example, that in the stories of Utnapishtim, Atrahasis, and Ziasudra, they have many gods bickering about the state of humankind. But the, the Jewish storyteller goes, that's not reality. There is one God, and he is not at war with himself. He is fine. We're not fine. He is doing okay. Okay, so there's immediately a new, that's a retcon, and it's in a, a new epiphany that changes things. Um, also very interesting, in, in the older stories, all of these heroes were in fact heroic. They were people that, they were the kind of Achilles, I was about to say Achilles heels, but that's not the right word. They were like Achilles before he got shot in the heel. Um, they were doing really, really well, and they just, they fought, they battled the flood. Noah was nobody. He was an ordinary man who just basically did what he was told. Okay. Also, unlike the other heroes, Noah actually didn't do anything to conquer the, the, the waves or the, the raging torrent of the flood. He just stayed in the boat. So, like someone like, Noah, what are you going to do today? Well, I'm going to stay in the boat. That's what I'm supposed to do. Okay? Um, very, very intriguing. All of them at the end of the flood were given the, because of their heroic acts, because of all their meritocratic, you know, mythologies, they got given the gift of an eternal life with the gods. They basically got raised to the level of gods. That didn't happen to Noah. He was basically said, God basically said, I will give you this promise and you can live out the rest of the days participating in creation before you die. It's interesting that the Jewish story is the one that kind of negates this, this afterlife escapist evacuation theology stance. Wow, that sentence made sense. Anyway. So is the story of Noah original? No, but also definitely yes. Because originality is about searching for the true origin. The true, like, that's, I, I just think it hel it's helpful to say originality reimagines the origin to make it applicable. It, it makes it timely. Uh,